So we are, we are to the last text of the book of Malachi. Uh, and this is exciting. It has been a difficult book. We've been doing this our seventh week, I think. And it's been difficult to preach, and I think it's probably been quite difficult to hear. There is heavy, heavy stuff in there, and, and today's passage is no different. Uh, if you were hoping for a nice, soft, cuddly ending, you're not going to get it. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it's just not going to happen. This last section deals with something called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And this is what's spoken of as the day that the Lord will return to ultimately hold us all accountable for our lives. And I can see some of you starting to squirm a little bit in your seats. And if I was sitting in a chair, I would be doing the same thing. Because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. It's really uncomfortable to talk about it. It doesn't matter what your position is on God, whether you believe in him or you don't. It's not a comfortable thing to talk about. If you think he's a myth or a hoax, this is just further evidence of why you wouldn't want to believe in this kind of God. And if you do believe in God, then this is the kind of stuff that you try to sweep under the rug that you don't really want to deal with. Um, But I think it's also something we long for as well. When we see the brokenness of the world, the injustice of someone who's sold into slavery, the senselessness of crime and war, of child abuse, of child brides, we long for someone who's going to come and say, no, that's not okay. You can't live like that and get away with it. We long for justice, I think. We long to see a world that's a whole and a peaceful place. A place that it was meant to be. A place where people love one another the way they were meant to love one another. As Alistair mentioned a few weeks ago, this judgment that we're talking about is both a present and a future reality. Malachi's talking about this as an event that will come in the future. But it's also something that's inaugurated with Jesus. Jesus is the one who says, this begins with me. So we're living in this sort of in-between space now, a between space where it's begun, but it's not yet concluded, and it will be finished one day. And Malachi, this book, holds out the invitation to us to live in light of that day. It holds out the invitation to return to God, to amend our lives so that they align with God's purposes for the world. In In last week's text, the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. And I think that, in a nutshell, is what this book is about. Return to me, and I will return to you. Throughout the book, people have been questioning God. The Lord tells them right at the beginning, I have loved you. And people after that say, how? How have you loved us? The Lord says, you've despised me. You've profaned the covenant. You've wearied me. And they all ask, how? How have we done that? How have we done these things? And what's amazing is that God even continues to answer them, that he even responds to their questions. And he continues to answer despite their sinful hearts, despite hearts that want to go after anything else. And the only thing he wants, the only thing, is that they would turn back to him. And it's finally in this section that we see a few people who do exactly that, who take the Lord's rebuke and they return to him. So it's, it's through that lens that I want to look at this last passage. What does it look like to stand on that last day? What is required in order for us to stand on that last day? And I think this text tells us that there's three things. And I don't usually do alliteration, but we're going we're gonna to go with it. Remembrance, return, reversal. God's remembrance, our return, and Christ's reversal. Now those all start to make a lot more sense as we go on. So let's get into it. If you've got a Bible... Open it up. If you don't have a Bible, you got one on your phone, open that up. If you don't, it's all going to be up here, so don't worry about it. 
Um, okay, this text, God's remembrance. The only reason that we are ever able to stand before God is because that he has an incredibly long and selective memory. He has a very long and selective memory. Look at verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. They shall be mine, he says. These are the words that God has spoken over his people, Israel, from the beginning. Despite their constant turning away from him, their rejection of his love, their constant going after any other God, he's never forgotten that promise. He says way back in Exodus, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And through everything, God is faithful to that promise. And these are the words that he keeps speaking over his church, over us, over me and you. Despite our constant turning away from God, our rejection of his love, despite our constant attempts to find love and life in anything but him, he continues to pursue us, to speak these words over us. You shall be mine on the day when I make up my treasured possession. God is an incredibly long and selective memory. And I don't mean that in the sense that we usually use it, which is a negative sense. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Negative sense. So Carrie and I have this deal that if I cook, she'll do the dishes. I think it's a pretty good deal. I think I got the better end of the stick. I cook, she does the dishes. And that means that pretty much every day that I come home, the kitchen is like spotless and I get to cook in a nice clean kitchen. But every once in a while, I'll come home and there'll be dishes on the counter and the place is a disaster. Uh, I don't know, it's been a busy day. Ethan was a disaster or whatever it was. And of course, I come in, I say, I can't believe you did this again. The kitchen's a disaster. How could you do this? And I don't remember that the last time she did it was like three months ago. And she's done it every other day, been faithful to it. That's what I mean by a selective memory. That's what we usually mean by a selective memory. Remember the few times that somebody screwed up and not the countless times that they've been faithful to it. But thankfully, what this text shows us is that's not the way that it is with God. He has an incredibly long and selective memory, but not for the times that we've messed up and done the wrong thing, but for the times that we've made even the slightest turn towards him. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They haven't even done anything yet. All they've done is start to talk amongst themselves and, and maybe kind of encourage them on to faith. And that's enough. It's enough for the Lord to pay attention. It's enough for the Lord to actually have a book of remembrance written before him. And I think it's an incredible display of God's forgiveness and his love for his people. After all these questions they've been asking, questioning his love, his teaching, being faithless to the wives of their youth, he writes a book of remembrance because they make the slightest turn towards him. It's such an incredible verse because it means that we're never so far gone that we're beyond God's grace. We're never beyond his forgiveness. And the only thing that God's incredible memory needs is for us to make that slightest return and he'll remember it. This is always his initiative. It's always his work. He's the one who initiated that relationship, who said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He's the one who continues to speak over us, you are my treasured possession. 
See, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who will stand on that day and those who will not, is not a difference in degree, it's a difference in kind. Let me put that another way. Even though Malachi has been calling Israel for the last three chapters to remember God in the way that they live, this is ultimately never about the way that they live. What we offer God, what our marriages look like, what we do with our money, this stuff matters, and it matters immensely. But don't ever think that doing these things incrementally better means you're going to be incrementally closer to God. That spending my money incrementally better means I'm incrementally closer to God. It's not a difference of degrees we're talking about. It's a difference of kind. It's a difference between those whose hearts are bent towards God and those that are bent in on themselves and away from God. See, the righteous woman, the righteous man, they have nothing to their credit. Nothing to their credit. Yet, they're spared judgment because they've made even the slightest motion to return to him. To be found righteous on that day is to be found in Christ, identified with Jesus in his life and his death. And that's what I mean by a difference in kind rather than degree. So that's the first thing that's required. God's incredibly long and selective memory. His remembrance of his own promise to make us his treasured possession. His remembrance not of our countless faults. Not the countless times that we've screwed up, but the few times that we've made that slight return to him. And that brings us nicely to the second point. Our ability to stand before God, yes, it requires his remembrance, but it also does require us to return, whatever that might look like. Remember that text from last week, return to me and I will return to you. As we've just seen, this isn't a massive display that we're talking about. All God wants is that we take his rebuke and that we make steps towards him. Steps to repentance and returning. And the image that keeps coming up in my mind for this is a scene from a movie called Hitch. And you might have, you might have seen this movie. Uh, this is the scene where, oh yeah, there, there it is. That's, that's a pretty st- fantastic picture. Yes, two men, very close together, faces. So this is Will Smith, Kevin James. And uh, Will is, is his kind of relationship coach. He's teaching him how to give kind of a, a kiss at the end of a first date outside the door. Very nice. And he t- explains to him, that he has to go 90% of the way, and he has to let her come the last 10. Okay? He has to go 90, she comes 10. And of course, he screws it up, and they end up kissing. But uh, that's the way that scene goes. But I think it's a really good illustration for this, because it's the same with this book. It's the same thing Malachi is telling us. It's that God is always going to be the one who initiates this. He's the one who's loved us since the beginning, but he doesn't force it. He always allows us to come that last little bit. And that's going to be different for every single person in this room. If you've, if you've never even given a thought to who God is, to who Jesus is, then that 10% might just be starting to ask that question. What would that look like to follow Jesus? Having a conversation with someone about that. For those who've been Christians for a short time or a long time, it might be moving towards trusting him in areas that you haven't before, whether that's with money or your marriage or your dating or how you spend your time, whatever that might be. It doesn't have to be a huge thing, and it doesn't have to be all at once. What's critical, though, is that our motivation is right. This passage shows us that a right return to God is always going to be motivated by two things. It's going to be motivated by both fear and a promise. And the danger in all of that is that we will always emphasize one over the other. We'll emphasize fear to the exclusion of promise or promise to the exclusion of fear. 
And we're going to call these three ways of returning uh, the insurance broker, the tourist, and Peter. Okay, can we get those? Yes, there we go. Insurance broker, Peter, and tourist. So the insurance broker. This is the person who responds to God's call to return to him solely out of fear. And I think it's an understandable response. There's a lot of talk in this passage about fear. And to be honest, there's a lot to fear in this passage. I mean, look at chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, that day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. It's brutal. And you should think it's brutal. And it brings up something I need to mention about the word fear. This passage equates the righteous person with someone who fears God. And we often try to dismiss this word as uh, reverence or respect or love. Instead of fear, we don't like this word. It rubs us the wrong way. Because our minds immediately run to people that we've feared, either people we've, we've heard about in history class, Hitler or Pinochet or Stalin or something like that, or people that we've known, maybe your high school uh, science teacher or the neighbor next door who likes to put creepy signs in their windows for you to read. You can ask me about that later. Uh, but these people really are to be feared. I mean, they're, they're evil. They're unjust people. But what we can't do is make the mistake of equating God with that kind of evil and injustice. When the text says that we're to fear God, it really does mean fear, not reverence, not respect, but not because God is evil or unjust. Exactly the opposite, because God is perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly holy. And we're not. We're so far from it. We should fear God because it's the right response to his goodness to his love. And that might seem like it makes absolutely no sense. But we've seen this throughout the Bible. Anytime somebody encounters God, this is their response to who he is. The prophet Isaiah, when God gives him a vision, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, And that's just a vision. But the reaction is right. It's a reaction of genuine fear. But God's response is, do not fear. Do not fear. The problem comes when we emphasize fear and fear alone to the exclusion of a promise. And that's the insurance broker that I've been telling you about. Someone who returns to God solely out of the fear of judgment. We've all encountered people like this. Uh, Rob Bell, this uh, pastor from the U.S., he's not one anymore, but was. He had this great video called Bullhorn where he tells the story of seeing this guy outside of a big sports stadium in the U.S. on game day. And this guy's got his megaphone, he's got his big signs, and he's yelling into it, essentially turn or burn, right? We know these people. We've all encountered them. They're all over the place, even upstairs on Robson Street, right on the corner there. We often see them. Big signs explaining the fiery end that awaits you. Big megaphone, turn or burn. And while I can't deny the coming judgment of God, talks about it in the book of Malachi. It talks about it all over the Bible. It's never the basis of our relationship for him, with God. God never holds this out as the basis of our relationship. Never. The basis of our relationship with God, the reason he wants us to return, is because of that very first thing he says in the book of Malachi. 
I have loved you. I have loved you. And that's what the insurance broker is missing. God's promise that he loves us with an everlasting love and that he will make us his treasured possession. When we talk about returning to God, fear cannot be the only motivation. In fact, it should never be the primary motivation. The primary motivation should always be God's love for us and his desire to know us. Look at the promise in Malachi 4.2. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. See, the same sun that causes that day to burn like an oven, the same sun that sets ablaze the arrogant, the evildoers, it's going to be the sun of righteousness for those who fear the Lord. It will bring health, healing, for those who love righteousness and serve God. And this is obviously a reference to Christ, the son of righteousness. He's the one who's described as the light of the world. Prophet Isaiah spoke about Jesus in these same terms using light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Those who've been oppressed will be released like fattened calves from the stall. In other words, no longer will the brokenness of the world have the final word. No longer will the oppressed be in bondage to systems of injustice. No longer will those who fear the shame and guilt that lives within them, will they be forced to bear that burden. The promise that returning to God is not just insurance against a fiery end, but that it will make a tangible difference in my life and in the world. That's the promise that's held out. It's incredibly beautiful. The problem comes when we emphasize the promise alone. And this is, I think, a good illustration of the tourist. The tourist. Now, I am not knocking tourism. I love to travel. Carrie and I love to travel. I wish we could do it more. But I think it's a good illustration. I'm talking about a certain kind of naive tourism. Tourism industry that's built around the promise of a good life with none of the hardship. You fly in for a week, you take the best of what the country has to offer, and you leave. We never think about what it might cost other people to give us that. I think the, the cruise ship that sank off the coast of Italy a couple of years ago, it shed some more light on some of the conditions that cruise ship workers live in. 14, 16 hours a day. Very little money, up to a year at sea. I mean, it's bad, right? And we don't think about it. We tend to not think about it. We want just the good stuff and not think about the hardship that's involved in it. And we do the same thing with the gospel. We want the promise of God. The promise that he'll make us his treasured possession without recognizing that it will cost us something in return. We want the promise of God that he will make us his treasured possession without recognizing that it's going to cost us anything in return. That to be his people means that he gets to have a say over what we do with our lives, how we spend our money, what we do with our relationships. But we just want that soft, cuddly God. The God who gives us something but doesn't desire anything of us in return. And when we do that, we cheapen the gospel. We take a promise that's cost God everything, and we think it should cost us nothing in return. And the problem is that as I've been preparing this text this week, I feel like I live in both of these camps <coughs> a lot of the time. Whenever I make following Jesus about something that I do, whether that's something... I believe, or doing the right things, or saying the right things, 
then I've missed out on the promise. The promise that God loves me with an everlasting love. And that he requires nothing more of me than to turn to him. But whenever I fall into thinking that that's all God desires of me, then I've lost sight of the fear. All God requires of us is that we make even the slightest motion of return to him. But he wants so much more for us. He wants all of us. All of our money, all of our stuff, all of our relationships, all of our loves. Jesus will not stand to be manipulated, used however we want to get whatever we want. He's the king over everything, the entire cosmos. He's a good and a perfect king, yes, but he's also a king that's to be feared because he's good and perfect. So the kind of returning that we need is one that compasses both the fear and the promise. And this is what I would call the Peter response to this. See, one day, Jesus was teaching by a lake, the Lake of Gennesaret, and the crowds were pressing in on him, and he didn't know where to go. So he got into this vacant boat that was at the shore, and he told Peter, it was Peter's boat, push out onto the lake, and I'll teach from there. So Jesus sat from the boat, teaching all the people on the hill. And after he was done teaching, he said to Peter, let down your nets for a catch into the lake. And Peter said, Lord, we've been out here all night. We've caught nothing. But if you say so, fine, I'll do it. So he lets down the nets into the water. And when they pull them up, it is such a massive catch of fish that the nets are breaking apart. They have to call their partners over, get over here, help us with these fish. And when they put them into the boats, both boats are sinking. There's so many fish. And Peter's response is so perfect. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they finally got the boats to shore, they leave everything. All of these fishermen, they leave the entire life they've known to go and to follow Jesus. And that's the right response. It's a response of fearful surrender. Fearful surrender to a promise that's so great that it's worth giving up everything in order to find it. And the fulfillment of that promise is Jesus himself. He's been the promise since the very beginning. Jesus' coming was not some divine rescue mission that God enacted when the world had got so bad that there was no other way of saving it. Jesus' death and resurrection, what we're going to celebrate next weekend at Easter, has always been plan A from the beginning. Yes, our ability to stand before God on the day requires our returning to him in fear and promise. Yes, it requires God's memory, his long and selective memory. But most importantly, it requires Christ's work, what I'll call his reversal. This is the last point I want to make, and I'll spend the last couple of minutes unpacking that phrase, Christ's reversal. See, Jesus is both the goal of our turning, the one we turn to, the one that's promised, but he's also the one that makes it possible to turn to God. Jesus is God made flesh. God come to dwell amongst his people. To see and to know Jesus is to see and to know the Father. To say I've seen Jesus is to know who God is. To experience Jesus' love is to experience the love of the Father. That everlasting love that he promised to his people from the beginning. And to miss who Jesus is, is to miss God. Now we haven't said it, but today is Palm Sunday. And that's why we had that reading of Jesus riding into Jerusalem 
on that day. It's the day that we celebrate Jesus' return to Jerusalem, the arrival of the king. Palm branches are waved, coats are laid down, people shout Hosanna, blessed is the king. It's a day of celebration in many ways, but it's also a day that's dark. It's dark because people confused Jesus for someone he was not. They were expecting and celebrating the arrival of a certain kind of king, the king that they wanted, the king who was going to overthrow the Romans, liberate them from oppression, reinstate Israel as a great nation. This was the king that they wanted so bad, but that's not the king Jesus was, not even close. Jesus was the king who came to hang on a cross, the king who came to inaugurate not another earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of God, and they missed it. After Jesus rides into Jerusalem, right at the end of that passage, after the crowds have all left, he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem, and he pronounces judgment over the temple and over the people. He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They missed it. They've been waiting for God for so long, and they missed it. To know the promise that he spoke over them all those centuries ago, they've been waiting for it, and they missed it. Because he didn't look like the king they expected. And he certainly didn't act like it. And once once they realized that he wasn't that king, they killed him. To miss Jesus is to miss having those words spoken over you. You are my treasured possession. Because not only is Jesus the object of our turning, but he's the one who makes it possible. Over and over again in the book of Malachi, the Lord has been seeking a people who will fear him, who will esteem his name. And in the end, God became the one who was despised and rejected in order to make us his treasured possession. That's the great reversal. That's the foolishness of all of this, of Easter, of the cross, of the gospel. That God himself became the one who was despised and rejected, in order that he might pronounce over us, you are my treasured possession. You are the people that I have loved with an everlasting love. To see Jesus hang on the cross is to see God give everything in order to fulfill that promise. And so this week, as we head into Easter, into Holy Week, that's what I want us to think about. To see God on the cross is to see him pay everything in order to fulfill that promise. I have loved you with an everlasting love. So return to me, and I will return to you. Amen.